Welcome to Swedishness, the podcast about life in Sweden. Our hosts are no less than one of Sweden's most loved and well-known TV hosts, Kattis Alström, and Ireland's pride in Stockholm, journalist and storyteller Philip O'Connor. Today we're going to talk about freedom of speech. And I was thinking about you because you've been in, you're from Ireland. Yes. You've been working in Russia, in Norway, in Denmark and Sweden. Yep. So what would you say is specific for the freedom of speech in in Sweden compared to the other countries? I I think there was a huge difference. When I first came to Sweden and I first started to work as a journalist in Sweden, you noticed this enormous difference. And the first thing really was the sense of accountability. Okay, people in power, they seem to be much more accessible in Sweden compared to what they would be in Ireland. Mm. As an example of that, I interviewed uh, the Prime Minister, Stefan Löfven, recently. Uh, If I was to try to do that in in another country, if I was to go to Russia and say that I wanted to interview somebody there, the process would be much longer. They'd probably want maybe a list of questions beforehand. But in this case, there was none of that. You Mm. contact the press secretary and they go, yeah, yeah, that's fine. You want to talk about migration. So it seemed to me to be much more open. And that to me is a sign of how freedom of speech and the freedom of the press work in this country, that there is that accessibility there, but it's taken seriously by both sides. But one of the questions I'd have, because I know you have a long history of journalism in this country, um, do you find it to be the same way? Do you find that the journalists take their responsibility seriously uh, with freedom of speech? Well, yes, I would say that, but uh, I was thinking about the thing you say about the access to, uh, for example, the prime minister or other ministers or other people with power. Mm-hmm. I think there's a, uh, been a difference uh, during the the last 10 years yeah. that um, they are very trained. They they know how to answer. I mean, the media training. So even if the access is there yeah. and we have a great access to them, I think that uh, they are also very skilled. That's the thing that, you know, just because you ask somebody a question doesn't mean that they're going to answer it, you know? Definitely not. But one of the things that I've often thought about in Sweden, you know, if you sit with your family on Christmas Eve or Midsummer's Eve uh, talking about things, that I've always noticed this desire to reach a consensus around things. That the idea of sort of, you know, having an argument over and back across a barroom table or across the dinner table, it doesn't seem to happen as much, in particular in Denmark. In Denmark, people are very forthright about their opinions and they agree to disagree. Whereas in Sweden, there seems to be this idea that we have to reach a consensus and that, you know, we're not allowed to lose our temper and start throwing things and that kind of thing. So I think that's very true. And I think among journalists, sometimes it's, uh, sometimes it's uh, difficult yeah. to have an opinion and you have to stand for, the, for your opinion. And even with people with power, uh, you need to... You very seldom hear people change their position yeah. during a debate. So you're more careful. Uh, you're careful about what you say and, and about your opinions. You really want to be sure about what mm. you're saying. And and that makes uh, the debates not really fun sometimes, I think. It's yeah. like boring because like the consensus thing, I think you're very right about that. Well, it kind of goes back to the politicians and the, and the business leaders being prepared, being media trained, that everybody has thought out their opinion beforehand. And it's kind of like chess, you know, you go, well, if I do this and they say that, and you kind of have all the answers before you even get started. Mm. And then you wonder, you know, what's the point in having a debate at all? Mm. You may as well just have a speech. But you know what else I found interesting, Cathy? 
that as journalists as well, if you contact a Swedish journalist about something they've written or something they've said on the airwaves, more often than not, they will reply. Mm. And for somebody like me coming from outside of Sweden, I found that amazing in the beginning that, you know, usually you would send an email to somebody and say, look, you know, I don't agree or maybe that was wrong or here's a fact that maybe you didn't take into account. And they replied and I was amazed Mm. because the sense of accountability seems to apply to journalists as well as, you know, people in power. Is that something that, you know, would you feel if, if a reader or if a listener writes to you about something, do you feel a sort of an obligation to explain yourself to them? More or less, yes. Yeah. Where does that I, I come do. from? I don't know. I think we're polite. I and and I, I some yeah I think it's some kind of politeness and I think also it's like you really want to reach out yeah and uh, but I was thinking about being open because I'm I'm very happy and pleased that we are in a in a country where you have access as we said to to leaders and to people with power and and all different kind of peoples but. I was thinking about the access and I was thinking about the debate. Sometimes it gets like uh, consensus-like. Mm-hmm. And I have many thoughts during the Brexit discussions in, in Britain yeah. um, and the connection and the relation between journalists and uh, people against and for Brexit. Mm-hmm. It was a very interesting debate and I was like um, amazed how they could be. They were quite hard and mm-hmm. harsh to politicians the journalists yep. and you you seldom hear this in Sweden we are quite maybe like polite or or mm-hmm. uh, in another way in Sweden yeah so the temperature in the in the debates and in the criticism is is um, is yep. not the same no, at it's, all. It's, very, it's a very confrontational approach to debate. It's very black and white. It has to go on the cover of a tabloid newspaper on page one mm. tomorrow. So it can be very, very simplified. Mm. And, you know, sometimes it's not even accurate. But if it sells newspapers or if it gets people to listen to your talk radio show, that's what happens. And I do appreciate the nuance because Sweden has tabloid newspapers like every other country in the world. But there seems to be a little bit more nuance in how they go about their business, you know. But do, do you see a difference? Because you've been working in Denmark and Sweden uh, and Norway but sometimes I think we are such a small country so I mean I know a lot of people I know ministers and I know the the people that I'm going to interview more or less so because we're a small country do you think that affects the way how we react to things or or the relationships? Yes and no because there seems to be this sort of like an almost moral or an ethical idea there where uh, people have managed to separate the personal and the professional so just because you know a minister you know if you're going to interview them on a morning news show here that doesn't mean you're going to give them an easy time so you know you're going to ask the questions that your listeners would expect you to ask and then after that you know you can put those things to one side and go and have a coffee somewhere mm-hmm. whereas uh, in Ireland in particular if you would see you know a journalist who is very close to a politician, well then there's sort of reason to believe that they have a different relationship outside of the studio than what they do in it. And that's a problem for the credibility of both. But it's something that I don't experience in Sweden. I do think that you know people are, are capable of, of making a difference between the two. Yeah, I think so too. But Phil, we need to give the listeners the historical background. Sweden has the longest possible tradition of free speech you could ever think of. In 1766, it became the world's first country to write freedom of press into its constitution. That's 250 years ago. But not only that. Freedom of the press is a big part of the Freedom of Speech Act. You have the right to express yourself freely on the radio, TV and the internet. And the authorities are not permitted to examine what is published or broadcast. 
Since the 1970s, Sweden has had tax-funded press subsidies to help newspapers compete with other higher circulation publications. This is in order to promote diversity and to ensure that people get more than one side of the story. Sweden's principles of freedom of information mean that the general public and the media have access to official records. This offers Swedish citizens a clear insight into the activities of government and the local authorities. Ola Larsson, Swedish writer and literary critic and also president of the Swedish section of Penn International, the world's oldest human rights organization. It has celebrated literature and promoted freedom of expression since 1921. It is today a worldwide association of writers in hundreds of countries and acts as a powerful voice on behalf of writers that are harassed or imprisoned. Ola, let's start with the big picture. What impacts has the Swedish freedom of speech and press had on Sweden's democracy development, would you say? I think it's fundamental. Um, I brought with me actually the actual law from 1766 uh, that is part of what you could call, I guess, the Swedish constitution. And I think that this sort of influence from this very, very radical piece of, of law has shaped Swedish democracy over the last 250 years. Um, you've brought with you this piece of legislation today. It's a parchment paper. Yes. It's yeah. quite small with a very old-fashioned font. It's very beautiful. It's like you find it in a museum. Just yeah. Could you just describe the contents of this particular act a little bit? If we open it up there, uh, it's very fine, very old uh, text here. But just uh, uh, summarize the mm-hmm. contents of it for me. There were two concepts in there that was very, very radical for its time. Mm-hmm. And the first was that all information, public information, should be available to all citizens unless there were very good reasons to apply a secrecy stamp on it. Uh, The uh, situation in most countries actually today is quite the opposite. Most public information is secret unless it has to be public. Mm -hmm. So that was a huge step uh, towards democracy. Mm. Uh, The other concept is, of course, you can't censor books before they are published. Afterwards, you can say this was a really dangerous piece of work. Let's withdraw it. That mm-hmm. has happened from time to time. But nobody could tell the printer, you can't print this. And that was also a very radical subject. But, uh, Ola, 1766, how did they reach out with this to the people in the country? Oh, I say it didn't make that much of a difference to most people in those days. But uh, there was a snowballing effect, really, really. And you had an explosion of new media and pamphlets and books and, and whatever published in, in Sweden after that. You can see that in, in, in the Royal Library, that um, if you look at the uh, shelves for printed material, you can see it before 1766, you can put several years into one shelf. And after 1766, you have to have an entire corridor. <laughs> so, for each year. Yeah. <laughs> but it's an interesting concept because... Um, after the the fall of Saddam Hussein in Iraq, uh, I remember friends telling me who worked for a news agency there that all of a sudden these pamphlets and free sheets mm-hmm. and newspapers started to appear uh, because at that stage there was no law, there was no freedom of speech law, they just published. But there's no situation in which, uh, you know, if you take the Satanic Verses by yeah. Salman Rushdie, which caused uh, such a furore when it came out, but the Swedish government would never say, no, you may not publish that book. No. 
they wouldn't. Mm. Uh, that would be in contradiction with the uh, Swedish constitution, actually. E- even if there was a threat of civil unrest or that kind of thing, they're just not going to take, they cannot take that action. Well, you could see what happened in uh, connection with the so-called uh, Mohammed caricature crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, one civil servant actually gave the order to shut down uh, the party, Swedish Democrats party's uh, website because they have published some uh, caricatures of their own mm-hmm. and he had to go. Uh, the minister was responsible, had to step down. Uh, So they had to resign because they infringed on the freedom of speech of others. Uh, That's the very central sort of position that this piece of legislation has in in Swedish constitution at the moment. Uh, The Mohammed caricatures, I think it it turned up in a Danish newspaper called Jyllandsposten a good few years ago, and it led to protests and indeed violence against uh, Scandinavian and Nordic interests in certain countries throughout the Middle East. And it caused a sort of, I think it was a global story Mm. really in terms of the reaction to that. But uh, again, that's not something that, uh, you know, it's... Some people might find it tasteless to do that kind of thing, but that's not enough under Swedish law to stop them being published. I think it's quite interesting to see how our Swedish media and Swedish politicians reacted to that crisis. I don't think any Swedish newspapers really chose to publish those caricatures, which they, of course, are free not to do. Mm. That's also an aspect of of freedom of speech. You don't have to publish things that you don't want to publish. Mm. On the other hand, when a politician actually tried to shut down a website with that kind of material, that politicians had had, they had to step down. Mm. So uh, that that's that's both sides, I think, of this kind of legislation were very visible in that crisis. Uh, the claim is that this is something unique here in Sweden. Mm. Would you agree with that? Both yes and no, which is the safe answer, of course. <laughs> uh, I would say that this is the earliest piece of legislation uh, of some fundamental rights that is part of modern society as a whole. Uh, some years later, of course, you have the American Revolution, mm-hmm. the War of Independence, and then you have the French Revolution. And this this idea of a fundamental openness when it comes to information and debate is central to the development of modern society as a whole. I've heard that you called uh, the regulations regarding the freedom of the press in this country, that you've called them a Pandora's paradox. What do you mean by that? I mean that once you open that box of freedoms, and there are several freedoms in that box, you can't put them back there again. It's totally, totally impossible. And you can see that this law is more radical than the politicians that comes after it. So there are several attempts to curb this freedom of speech, uh, beginning with Gustav III, uh, the king who became king in a coup, actually. Uh, And then it was sort of reinstituted again in 1810, And then from time to time, different kings and different politicians has tried to curb freedom of speech, and it's almost impossible. Mm. Why is that? Well, the taste for freedom. Have you tasted freedom? Then you don't want to go without it. Mm. I think that that's a sort of general impulse in in all democratic activism. And you can see that this is almost like a development where you take three steps forward and then two steps backward Mm. and then three steps forward again. But what about, you you say about that you can't put the the feeling of freedom back, but what kind of responsibility comes with the the freedom of speech and and this kind of freedom? Oh yes, that, that is one of the really tough questions to answer and it's also a very important question. This It's of course a fact that if you use your freedom of speech, you are responsible for your words. You and only you are responsible for your words. You can't sort of say, I had to rephrase phrase it this way because the police wouldn't let me say it otherwise. Once you can 
talk freely, then it's you and you alone that really is responsible. And this, of course, is that if you if you say something really terrible, like uh, instigating violence or, or terror against somebody else, then you're responsible for that too. So it is a re- freedom that comes with a responsibility, yes, and I think that everyone would agree with that. But, but that sort of creates another paradox there, because even though that you have freedom of speech, you still have to sort of regulate yourself a little bit. Yeah. And in Sweden a lot, and indeed in the Europe in the broader sense, there's a lot of talk about uh, the opinion corridor and uh, you know what's acceptable to say. Um, what do people mean when they talk about this opinion corridor in Sweden? Actually, I, I consider that to be a quite conservative concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a little bit of whining in there somewhere. You yeah. say, I can't say what I want because somebody will contradict me or oppose me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you are free to speak and speak your mind, then you have to accept the fact that somebody will, will say something totally different and go against you. And I feel that when you talk about what you call the opinion corridor, that is some fear in there that I will be contradicted. I, I, I have a problem with that concept. But it's not like only the thing about being contradicted. It, it's also about threats. And, yes. And, and uh, especially now with social media and everything. Yeah, that's that's a different story altogether. I would say if, if you feel that we often talk about that we have a consensus culture in, in Sweden and so on, that, that we tend to want to agree with each other and some people think that we want to do that a little bit too much from time to time. Uh, that might be true, uh, but then again, we have we have this freedom of uh, speech actually leads to a political discussion or political climate. Their consensus is really important because if you can put all the facts on the table, you can discuss them openly. Then, of course, you have to agree to a middle ground or what's actually true and what's what's false. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, this freedom of speech can actually be seen as leading to a consensus culture if you want to. Mm. But this concept of threat and, and hate speech, that, that's something different. And I would say that that is the greatest threat to freedom of speech in Sweden today. Mm. Um, for the last 10 years or so, we've had a development where threats on, on the internet and uh, often anonymous threats uh, is becoming something that you encounter almost on a day-to-day basis. And that is, of course, uh, an attempt to intimidate people and, and uh, scare them so they won't be able to exercise their freedom of speech. And I think that has to be contradicted and contradicted quite sharply, but not with new laws. One interesting factor, one interesting situation that occurs with freedom of speech is that just because you have freedom of speech doesn't mean that anybody is forced to give you a channel or a platform no, for that's it. Right. But then if you come from the, the edges of society, mm. what, what sort of a right of reply do you have if somebody says something about you in Swedish media? Can you contact an editor or a broadcaster and say, I want to give the other side of that story? I think we have seen quite a lot of examples of that lately. But I also might add that uh, when the internet sort of became a public domain in the mid-90s, I wrote two books with a friend of mine, Lars Eilsammer, who said that this is a democratic breakthrough. Mm. It really, really is that. I mean, that you can, like, for instance, publish your own pod or Mm. podcast, and um, people who are interested will listen to it. But, and this is really, really important, you shouldn't confuse that kind of debate with serious journalism Mm. because serious journalism has got certain limits limitations you have to you can't insult people you have to fact check and double check every fact you publish Mm. and so on and most many people in 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 the podcasts and and the 
as you say, social media, uh, sometimes seem to think that they are doing journalism, but they're not. They're doing opinion making, so to, so to speak. Mm. Mm. And that's a very important difference, I think. But you can definitely get your opinion out there and even some rather terrible opinions, I would say. This is actually something that this piece of legislation that we talked to led to in the beginning. Because in the 18th century, we had an explosion of new media in Sweden. And lots of very strange books and newspapers and pamphlets uh, were published. And it takes a while uh, for, what do you say, the public debate to adjust to this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So after a while you could say, uh, should I trust, for instance, uh, the Watchtower uh, or Dagens Nyheter or Pravda? Mm. Uh, so you have to have a certain know-how, how to analyze facts and opinions. And I think that right now we're a little shell-shocked by the explosion of new media, but I think this sort of know-how will be sort of structured, give or take 10, 20 years from now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ola, another thing I, I'm curious about is being some debate about, especially in public service, about can you say everything? Can you say anything? Uh, can you express anything in Sweden? There is a very interesting piece of legislation from 1949, and it's uh, a law that prohibits instigation of terror and hatred. The Swedish term is Hetzmot Folkgrupp. And that piece of legislation was a direct effect of the Holocaust because Swedish neo-Nazis were spreading propaganda from, uh, from a Swedish platform actually out over Europe. So we had this limitation to freedom of speech in Sweden. You cannot instigate terror or hatred against a group of people because of their ethnic background or, or whatever. Uh, that is a limitation of freedom of speech. And I think most people stand behind that limitation. And we have other types of laws in Europe that I think has gone a step too far. Like, I think in France, for instance, it's a crime to deny the Holocaust. If you do that, and if you try to deny one of the most documented uh, tragedies in, in, in human history, uh, you have a problem. What is your opinion about uh, truth connected to the freedom of speech? Oh, yes. Um, the truth will always prevail. <laughs> and I think Luther said that once. Uh, anyway, uh, of course, as I said, with all this information out there, and we should remember that we are in a period of information wars. There is propaganda from states, there are propaganda from political groups and, and even terror groups, as we know. Uh, and we are a little bit overwhelmed by this this flood of information and we need i think to create the tools to separate facts from fantasies mm. uh, and that is what serious journalism did in the 19th century and 20th century and i think we should learn from that process we need to become so much better all of us if we're all going to be journalists we mm. all need to use the same tools as journalists and be able to, to fact-check sources and, and, and so on. That is uh, really something that uh, I think the Swedish school should train the pupils in, and I think they are getting there. That was actually you my... Think I think I, it's I, not I threatened. You think it's, they're getting there? I think they are. I think they started out with several projects. Mm. That was actually my next question was, where does the responsibility lie? Because it seems you can do, you can create serious mm. journalism, but if people don't know to, how, to, how to read and interpret and what value to give it compared yeah. to other sources, but is that the responsibility of schools, of parents, of the state... Who should take the leading role here? 
I think that all the things you mentioned have a very, very important role to, to play. Uh, school is, of course, central when it comes to teaching everybody what they need to know. <laughs> But then, of course, uh, you talk about politics, you talk about journalists, and, of course, we all have a responsibility. And the thing is, everybody is free. Everyone is responsible. So that's, I think that's the basic uh, sort of central question when it comes to freedom of speech. If mm. you want this freedom, you are responsible. Do you see, see any problems about uh, the fact that um, politicians, for example, have been so good at expressing themselves and, and having the right answers and, and don't really answer the mm -hmm. question? And everybody are media trained in one or another way. Yeah, I think it's it's sometimes it's so dull today to listen to to politicians because they all sound the same and they've been through the same courses and, mm. and training camps and knowing how to really avoid the, the bullet, so to speak. But isn't that also some kind of a responsibility you have of the freedom of speech to not doing that, not being that media trained to to be truth and and really answer the questions. We would like we would like that to to be a fact, but we also know that politics in Sweden as elsewhere is sometimes a dirty game, and they have their own tricks and and practices. Uh, and then again, it's up to the rest of us, uh, citizens, journalists, school pupils, whatever, uh, to actually ask the kind of questions that you can't avoid. Mm. So I mean, the level of freedom of speech has taken a huge leap because of digital media. But I think we all have to climb up there as well when it comes to what we do with this freedom. Will the rules change now that social media and the internet carry so much of the information we consume? Does anything need to be updated in Sweden's laws in this area? Possibly, but I think we should be really, really careful there. I mean, we have laws, as we have said, against... Um, instigation of hatred, for instance, and to threaten somebody on, on the internet, uh, that's a crime. And I think the police should be so much better in actually upholding Swedish law. Mm. Uh, so that there's nothing wrong with the laws. Perhaps there's something wrong with practices. Mm. But I've heard voices saying, perhaps we should take this this piece of paper, the, the uh, Freedom of Speech Act, and, and revise it a little bit, uh, because hate speech is such a great problem. And that, I think, is, is a very dangerous path If, if you take it, because if you have hate speech on the one end that threatens freedom of speech, then you have stricter and stricter legislation as the other threat. So you have to defend this uh, in both directions, so mm -hmm. to speak. And to do that, I think we should be better to actually enforce the kind of legislation we have right now and not inventing new ones. Would you say that this, the Swedish freedom of speech is some kind of a role model for other countries? It was. It was in the nine, uh, 18th century, perhaps uh, when it was restructured again in, in 1810. But I think this is actually um, common ideas today. If they were actually common in, in, in the 18th century as well, that was just made into a piece of legislation in Sweden first. Mm. But this is progress. This is democracy. And we were happy and lucky enough to be there and, and perhaps put one of the stones there in the wall quite early. But lots of people and, and democratic nations all over the world has sort of continued building this great structure we call democracy. Mm. So I, I certainly hope this is common ground. Okay, thank you so much. It was interesting listening thank to you. you. I think it was really fascinating, he bringing 
in the the pamphlet of freedom of speech was That was amazing like, because it gives you a sort of a, a physical idea of, of what happened at the time, 1766, yes. mm. and this thing still, like it still exists, he still has it. And it just goes to show how widely distributed it was because, mm. you know, that's a good few hundred years ago, you'd think that all of those things had disappeared, you mm. know, but uh, obviously he held on to that copy. But it's interesting as well, the sort of the the dichotomy, the, the dilemma that's faced between, you know, freedom of speech and, and the ability and being allowed to say whatever you want, but also the responsibility to do that in, in a responsible manner. Definitely, but it also makes me kind of humble, actually, because I just think about all the, the people around the world who doesn't have this. Yeah, I, I mean, it's amazing we have this freedom of speech. We should be so proud and... Yeah, I think it is something that uh, once it, when you have that kind of freedom, like Ola was saying, you can never put it back in the box, but also it's not something that should be taken for granted. There are a lot of people who couldn't stand here mm. and say the things that we're saying into a microphone without being afraid, without being punished, and we should probably be grateful for that fact. Definitely. This podcast was brought to you by the Swedish Institute, a government agency which promotes interest and confidence in Sweden around the world. To learn more about all things Swedish, visit sweden.se or sweden.se on Facebook or Twitter. To learn more about the Swedish Institute, visit si.se.